All right, grab your Bibles and flip to Psalm chapter 19. We are talking tonight about Yahweh's law, somewhat of a heavy topic, so we're going to wade through quite a bit, uh, and we'll probably go a little over, but that's sometimes necessary. Psalm 19, Yahweh's law. Let's read that text, and then I will pray, and we will go right to work. Psalm 19, verse 1. These are the words of God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, your word is like fire, burning away the dross, leaving only the righteous behind. We are grateful that we can know you, serve you, and fellowship with you. We confess our sins before you, laying them bare before your throne, knowing that their absolution is only possible because of the blood of the Lamb. Help us, Holy Spirit, to look to the very word that you have inspired so that we may know what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. Like the psalmist, we look to the covenant today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, I want to begin tonight with a quote of which I am 100% in agreement. C.S. Lewis said this about Psalm 19. He said, quote, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world, end quote. I concur. Psalm 19 is a favorite of mine for reasons we'll get into tonight. And next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Psalm 23, perhaps the most famous of all the Psalms. Given our current cultural situation, the whole humanism has taken control of the town square thing, I find myself growing more and more weary of the vacuous ecclesiology that occupies the time and attention of Christians today. This, uh, the desultory debauchery, we might say, that we see in the world is because Christians today do not have the fundamental biblical principles in place they have essentially retreated and made excuses along the way. If, if the foundations are shoddy, guess what? The whole house is going to be shoddy. Correspondingly, I am growing more and more confident in the sheer eminence and superiority of the Christian world and life view. 
If your weariness of this cultural situation is outweighing your confidence in the power of the Word of God, then I suggest you stop and uh, get your priorities in place. Stop letting a fear of man rule your heart. Stop letting the newspaper headlines dictate your willingness to believe or not the promises of God. Repent for believing the words of men over the word of God. Now, I mentioned this here in the introduction of this psalm because Psalm 19 gives us an extraordinary glimpse at the comprehensive nature of the Christian faith. It gives us an extraordinary glimpse at the comprehensive nature of the Christian faith. The 19th Psalm is another hymn of praise. Uh, It's a journey of divine revelation, one author put it. Like Psalm 8, it's a celebration of creation, what we looked at last week. But unlike Psalm 8, it's situated within a set of royal psalms, uh, Psalms 18 through 22. So we find here basically a drilling down of divine providence from the, uh, from the sky heaven down to the Torah instruction of God's word to the faithful worshiper, all the way from the top to the bottom. We have this drilling down of divine providence. And Christianity itself, because of this passage, we can conclude, along with obviously other passages, we can conclude that Christianity itself accounts for all of reality. Christianity accounts for all of reality, for all of the created order, from the journey of the Son to the written Word of God and all the way to the prayers that come from the hearts and the mouths of God's people. So all of it belongs to God. All of created reality belongs to God. So we can account for those things. And we thank God for it. In our text, we find that the heaven displays, the heavens display the wonder and knowledge of God. There's something mysterious about that. but That's what the Bible affirms. Uh, God's law instruction, we know, gives divine wisdom to Man, divine direction to man, the structure of the law, the direction of the law. There's something about that that just blesses us, that gives us something we may not have had otherwise. And certainly as sinful creatures apart from grace, we do have. And as a result, we know that man is homo respondens. That's a book title that sits on my shelf. Meaning this, that man responds to the creation and to the word. That's who man is. He is somebody who responds To the creation, we respond to the Word, and those responses should mark us in our lives. Now, there are three sections here. The the heavens are a silent witness to the glory of God. That's the first section. The Word of God, the Torah, is a loud, vocal witness to the glory of God. That's the second section. And then the third section is basically this. Life as an image bearer who responds accordingly is a tremendous blessing. Life is a blessing. So let's look at our passage. Uh, to, to kind of build on that, though, verses 1 through 6, it basically speaks of God's revelation in creation. Verses 7 through 11 addresses God's revelation in Torah, in his, his written word, his instruction. And then verses 12 through 14 tell us how we are to respond to such revelation. So that's the, kind of the outline, if you will. So the journey goes from the general and observable, the the outside of man stuff, and and, and it goes from that to the particular and the experiential. So heaven, law, 
personal response. Those are the three sections here. And you'll also notice that we have the three, three different names of God that are used here, which is a fascinating study on its own. But we have three names. The general El, which was actually just a shortened version of Elohim in Hebrew, that, that just means God. So El is used here at the very beginning in verse 1. And then we have God's covenant name, Yahweh, in verse 7. And then towards the end, we have this beautiful summary, my rock and my redeemer. So we go from almost like what seems impersonal, though God is absolutely personal, as Van Til, Van Til would put it, uh, self-contained, absolute. We, we move from what seems impersonal to what is very, very personal. Uh, and so God is in a vague deity. He's close to his people. Let's read verses 1 through 6. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its, run its course. It's, uh, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat, it being the sun. So the Psalm of David, this is for the choir director, we're, we can see there at the, at, the, at the top. The Psalm of David begins by speaking of the heavens, which are telling. They are telling. It's an active thing that's happening. They are telling of the glory of God. The expanse or the firmament declares to the eye that they are the work of his hands. Whose hands? Well, God's hands. L. God's glory is manifest in the created order that we experience every single day. That's the position of Scripture. God's glory is manifested in the beauty of the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the, the skies, it's in the, his glory is, is plastered everywhere in this creation. And this aesthetic aspect of creation is a pointer back to the creator and the sustainer. We're supposed to look at those things and go back to God with them. And David describes the speech and knowledge that is put on display day to day and night to night. It pours forth. Uh, that is, it, it bubbles up like a spring. And it is obvious if only we take a moment to actually look. Far too many people are too busy doing this and not looking at what's going on around them. In verses 1, 2, and 3, the heavens speak a word. The heavens speak a word. The worshiper speaks a word in verse 14. So kind of a connection here. The heavens, like a book, must be read. They speak of the glory and ineffable nature of God. And yet there is a paradox here in verse 3. It seems jarring when you read it. Day to day, it pours forth speech, but there's no speech. There's a reason for that. The paradox is this. It is wordless speech. Sort of like the psalmist will talk about the mountains crying out. and We know no vocal uh, you know, frequencies are being emitted that are in an intelligent, intelligent uh, frame that we can understand. But there's a reason, and, and here's why. There's this unheard sound that saturates all things, and it is present, and it is to be understood by man. So we're talking about man and his relationship to the created order. So there is a speech, but you can't hear it. But you're not really supposed to hear it. 
because there's something more specific that we are to hear and take heed to. We'll get that in verse 7. So the point is, though, that man cannot escape the living God. All of creation displays his glory. You cannot, uh, ex- you can't escape it. Um, the unbeliever can't escape, escape it. Van Til would use this illustration of a radio that's just always tuned to God. You can't change the station. It's just always going to be there. You're in God's world. You're breathing God's air. And your heart is beating as a grace of God. You, it's inescapable. And there's a metaphor David uses here. I imagine him watching his day unfold as he composed this psalm. The sun, which comes and goes on a circuit, like the bridegroom coming out of his chamber after consummating the marriage covenant, he likens those two things. The point is there is, there is joy in the created order, and every morning his mercies are new. So think of the newly married young man who has consummated his marriage. He gets up the next day, and he's refreshed. There's beauty. There's joy in the marriage covenant. And that is the sun every single day. Uh, the, the sun departs to and fro, and nothing is hidden from its heat, it says in verse 6. And curiously, the sun gives light so we can see, but yet we also see in verse 8 that God's law in verse 8 does the same thing. So as the sun allows us to see what's going on in front of us, so the law of God instructs us so we can actually see. We talked a lot about that in the book of Judges when we went through that book. That was the whole theme, doing what is right in your own eyes instead of the eyes of Yahweh. So creation rejoices, God's law wisdom rejoices, and thus God's worshiper must rejoice. And we'll see that shortly. Also contained within the poem is a lack of hiddenness. Nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. Nothing is hidden. It seems like lately that is being more palatable, (laughs) as hot as it's been. But nothing is is hidden. But later, the worshiper in verse 12 asks for forgiveness for any hidden faults. You can see the connection here. The poem is is a masterpiece. I think C.S. Lewis was absolutely correct. From the very start, we see the integral nature of creation as an expression of God's beauty, as an expression of God's glory, and an expression of wonder. Look at verse 7. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even much more fine fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, this is the transition to the worshiper, moreover, by them, your servant, or more literally, literally, your slave, is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, the covenant name of God, interestingly enough, is used seven times in this section. Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Seven times it is used. It was used once in the previous section. That was the general name for God. So we're moving out of the general to the, to the specific. Like Psalm 119, this psalm explores several nouns, several adjectives, several verbs, and even adverbs. It is chock full of glorious truths that are meant to express the multitudinous nature of, covenant, uh, of the covenant Lord's covenant law. Now, follow along here as you, as you look at your text. The law is, we need to explain this, the law, this general uh, word here, Torah, is, is Yahweh's comprehensive will for all of creation. 
is His comprehensive will for all of creation. It's His instruction. It's His blueprints for all of the created order. It is His will, this law structure that restores or converts the soul. I think the King James uses the word converts. Meaning, it takes that which is aberrant and it puts it back in its place. That which is deviated and puts it back on the right path. That's what the law of Yahweh does. The testimony of Yahweh is a different Hebrew word. It's the witness of Yahweh as he reveals himself in history. Think of testimony and witness kind of being a a correlation there. The precepts and the commandments refer to God's disclosure of the authority and immutability of his law structures. The fear of Yahweh is the reverence due his name. We also have here in verse 9, the judgments. The judgments are God's judicial judicial pronouncements which conform to his revealed law. Uh, One commentator wrote this and it, it was brilliant. Together these terms show the practical purpose of revelation to bring bring God's will to bear on the hearer and evoke intelligent reverence, a well-founded trust, and detailed obedience. So the covenant that we are in with Christ, thanks be to Christ, is meticulous, covering all things, which is why David goes into such detailed obedience. Different words to describe the different aspects of Yahweh's glorious law. We also have adjectives which describe the nouns. Yahweh's law is perfect, meaning it lacks nothing because it is is flawless wisdom, impeccable. God's testimony is said to be sure, meaning that it is verified, it is faithful. Yahweh's precepts are said to be right, meaning that they are morally straight and precise. Yahweh's commandment and fear is pure and clean, meaning that it is ceremonially spotless and thus it's acceptable to God. Yahweh's judgments, it says, are true, meaning they are firm, they are reliable, and they measure up to the standard of truth, righteousness, and ethical purity. So those are the adjectives. We also have the verbs, restoring the soul, uh, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, uh, righteous altogether. What does God's law do for men? That's the question. Well, it restores the image of God through the vehicle of the gospel, makes us wise, gladdens the heart, and makes us see the world as God intended. It endures forever, as does God. And since it is completely and totally righteous altogether, it remains the standard for the world. It is the standard. Yahweh's instruction, inscripturated in the Holy Bible, has a universal component to it, touching on all of created reality. As God relates himself to man, his revelation gets more specific. Uh, Torah restores life, making us whole and complete. Fearing Yahweh makes one clean, uh, or ritually or ceremonially pure. All this language of comprehensiveness of, of God's law The integral nature of life in God's world is stated here rather masterfully. The value of the commandments of God is nearly incalculable. They are more desirable than gold. And he goes further, even much fine gold, the type of gold where the dross has been removed. It's in its purest state. It's even more to be desired than that. Or to translate today, Bitcoin, even much fine cold storage Bitcoin. They are sweeter 
They are sweeter and more pleasant to the appetites of man than even the pre-processed drippings of the honeycomb. The whole culture mandate building start to finish is desirable, it is sweet. This is God's world, this is God's instruction. And as a slave to Yahweh, we are warned, we are admonished, lest we fall. We are also blessed when we keep and preserve them in our lives. There is reward and positive consequences to it. Children, listen, God's law is meant to be cherished in your heart. In fact, it's put there by the Holy Spirit. You are to treasure it. You are to speak of it like David does here. It is a glorious thing to behold the law of God. And look at verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So having moved from the created order and God's law being the central guidepost for understanding it properly, we now move to the worshiper. Uh, and by the way, natural law is not disconnected from Torah revelation. There is no such duality in Psalm 19 or anywhere in Scripture. We can distinguish, but we cannot separate. We have here a call to meditation, a call to meditation on God's divine instruction. When you pay attention to God's law in your life, basking underneath the, the heavens of God's creation, your life is never the same. Your life is never the same. You cannot have an encounter with Christ and His law through the vehicle of His substitutionary death, His gospel, that the Spirit has now applied that to you. You don't have that and then remain unmoved and unchanged. Here David seeks the forgiveness of God. And why wouldn't he after comparing himself with God's revelation? Why wouldn't he look at all he's just written and say, forgive me, God, Forgive me. In light of the mirror of God's word, he cannot stand straight. He's looking at God's standard and he realizes, I can't stand straight. I can't even stand in it. He must have, he says, the most hidden aspects of his life revealed, laid bare before God. How many of us have gone to prayer and said, God, I know there are some secret presumptuous things in my heart that I'm hanging on to. Would you lay them bare before you? Are we bold enough to ask of that? If God keeps his slave in check, being ruled by God's instruction and not his own lusts, then he can be blameless and acquitted. He, he can experience full absolution. He can experience full forgiveness. And forgiveness leads to maturity. This language here, be acceptable, that is language, it's Levitical language, it's sacrificial language. You can go look Leviticus 22, 17 through 20 later, and you can see. Meditation ought to be the filling of the mind with divine instruction so that we are forgiven, and also so Yahweh, the rock and redeemer that He is for us, can be properly worshipped and praised. Yahweh, is, this language here is actually Yahweh is the kinsman redeemer for His slave. Jesus, our older brother, substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, pays our debt, releases us from guilt. He has redeemed us. He's our brother. And we ask God 
to let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart to be acceptable in the sight of God because that is the only way to truly live in God's world. That is the only way to live truly in God's world. There is no, there is no reviving. There's no wisdom. There's no rejoicing. There's no enlightenment apart from the word of God. I mean, even calling it the enlightenment is just far too much credit. It was a darkening moment of Europe. There is no enlightening apart from the word of God. Now, let's apply this a bit. I mentioned earlier my frustration with modern ecclesiology, which neuters the gospel of the kingdom, and thus it leaves Christians essentially disengaged. And we saw how that went the past two years. The reason that modern churchmen have ultimately forsaken the created order, think of avoiding, avoiding at all costs things like cultural pursuits, <laughs> politics, and so on. I, this wasn't in my notes, but I'll just go here. I, I, the, a church that I saw, I saw a sign and it was posted, the gospel, you know, it's the miraculous birth of Christ, it's, it's his substitutionary death, I'm paraphrasing, and uh, it was, it's his victorious resurrection. And I thought, you're missing something. You're missing something. You're missing his enthronement. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's not just me and my salvation. You're missing that component. It is his enthronement as king and lord. So the reason that modern churchmen have ultimately forsaken the created order, avoiding all of these things out there, and, and adopting some sort of dualism instead is because they have lost, and thus they have failed to acknowledge the unity of the Word of God. And that's a unity that is proclaimed and laid out here in Psalm 19, no less. Now, what do I mean by this? When we think of the Word of God, we usually mean one of two things. When I say, what is the Word of God? You're probably thinking one of two things. First, we might be thinking immediately of the Bible, the 66 books of the Christian canon. That may be what you immediately go to. What is the Word of God? Ah, oh, it's the thing on my lap here. I have it right here open to Psalm 19. Second, the other thing you might think of, we might also think of John 1.1 and the description of Jesus who is the Word of God, who indeed is God. And I've mentioned this before, but there's also a third category, what we call the creation word, when Jesus spoke all things into existence. You can uh, see that in, in Psalm 8. You can see it in, in Proverbs 8 as well. So creation word, incarnate word, and an inscripturated word, those are the three aspects or expressions of the overarching word of God. So when we say the word of God, those three things are involved in it to some degree or another. So all things are present, albeit we know that Jesus is the one who became a man, taking on actual human flesh as a male, and thus restores us, the worshipers, to God. So it's not obviously explicit here, uh, but the unfolding of redemptive history and the New Testament explains that particular part. So the Word of God is one. The Word of God is a unity. It is one, meaning that there is a unity of those aforementioned expressions of the Word of God. It's not like the creation word conflicts with the incarnate word, the Son of God, Jesus himself, and then we have a problem with Scripture as well. I just, you know, you, you Andy Stanley's been popularizing this nonsense, talking about, you know, we don't need to say the Bible says, Jesus said. Well, you're confusing the Word of God. You're, you're being, uh, you know, <laughs> truncating it however you see fit. It's relativized. It's nonsense. 
But a Trinitarian, a Trinitarian word dynamic, we might say. We don't need, we, we don't create the unity of the Word of God. We discover it. And then even then, we don't really discover it. We, it's revealed to us first. Meaning this, this, this divine word is one, and thus there is power to it that is living and active, which pierces the soul. You might remember that from the book of Hebrews. It pierces the hearts of men. Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. James 1.18 reads, In the exercise of his will, he brought, forth, brought us forth by the word of truth, the word of truth, so that we might... Uh, that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is power to those who are being saved. A couple of verses later in verse 24, Paul says that Christ is the power of God and he is indeed the wisdom of God. So we are speaking of the unity of the word of God, how that fleshes itself out. Um, Dewey Bird would use the illustration of a prism the law, God's law is like the sun. The light shines through the prism, and then you have these different colors that show up, and those are the aspects of creation. And that's what he meant. Um, he built on Kuiper's work, and he, that's what he meant by sphere sovereignty. He was talking about the law structures of creation that come from this one source, God himself, this one law, this one word of God that then falls upon the creation. So we're talking about the unity of the Word of God. We're talking about the power of the Word of God. And none of us were clever enough to invent it or discover it on our own. Rather, here's the thing, this integral Word of God thrusts itself on our hearts only by the grace of God, opening our hearts and minds in the process so that we can look to the Scriptures in order to make sense of it, seeing its diversity and its essential unity. I mean, you have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the equal ultimacy of God, the balancing of the one and the many. God reveals himself in the creation word, the incarnate word, and the inscripturated word. And in that is diversity, and yet there is unity. It's an essential unity. God must be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or you have a whole set of other problems. So the word of God is at work in making us new, so that we can deal with the Word of God giving, given to us in the Bible, the revelation of God Himself through His Son. So the Word, we know, though, must break apart our stony hearts first, and then can we read creation, and then we can read Torah. That's, that's the, the order of events. Your heart has to be broken by the Word of God. That is the power of God come to you by grace through faith. The, the Holy Spirit gives that to us. And then you can start to read creation properly. Then you can start to read God's, God's law, His instruction, His Word correctly as well. Thus, the Word of God is the only sure foundation for all of life. It is the only sure foundation. To properly handle the Word of truth as given to us in the Holy Bible, one must be in its grip, renewed by it, sharpened by it, and thus beholden to it. There is no such thing as a Christian who hasn't read his Bible in months. To, to handle the Word of truth, you have to be in its grip, renewed by it, sharpened by it, and thus beholden to it. And Jesus Christ stands at the very center as the meaning of the Bible and as the unifier of of it. He is the one who brings history together. He is the one who interprets creation for us, and he is the one who makes us his slaves 
all for the glory of God. Now, to reiterate what I'm trying to drive home here, the Word of God is the only thing that begets new life in the elect. The Word of God is the only thing that begets new life in God's chosen people. Through that same word power, God then attaches us to the truth. And by the way, the capital T truth, the truth about everything, about creation, about man, about culture, the sciences, etc., all of it. Accordingly, this process of renewal that we looked at last week makes us see the natural world properly. We see that the creation magnifies God. We look upon it and we see that there's something going on in the created order that we could not see had not the word and the power of God changed us. We see the unity of creation. We see the predictability of history as God sanctions us to move us and guide us as Christ takes dominion in the world. Uh, we also see the beauty of our culture-making efforts. We see all of it. We now correspond to the world properly, having been united by and to this Word of God. We experience that restoration our, ourselves. We experience the restoration not only of ourselves, but also of our relationships, the restoration of man's place in God's creation order. And a sidebar here, when I say integral, I mean integration. That is, we ourselves are an integral whole. We are attached by covenant to God. It's an inseparable bond based on the blood of Christ and His, and His oath. Uh, creation is an integral whole. There, there are no dualities in creation. There's no humanistic, what we call dialectics or tensions like, like physical, uh, which is, is less important compared to the spiritual. That was the, the, the platonic dualism problem of the Greek metaphysics. Um, there's none of that going on. We are made whole by the Word of God, and we are put in God's whole creation to magnify and glorify Him. So the integral work of the Word of God, wrought by the Spirit's power, it brings everything together so that we can see the world the way God intends. And this is, this is Torah life of Psalm 19, and even Psalm 119, the longest chapter in Scripture. Without it, we worship the creation rather than the Creator. I mean, that's the most simple definition of idolatry. It's, it's maximizing the creation over against the Creator. It's, it's falling prey to this idea that there is some aspect of God's world that must be elevated over God. That's idolatry. And if we don't have this power to correct our lenses so we can see, we will always go, it could be the state, it could be literal pagan worship out in the woods. Oh, from there to there, it doesn't matter. If we don't have the Word of God to see, we will order the creation in a way that fits our standards, the way we want it to be, which is exactly what is unfolding before your eyes, mind you. So the laws, statutes, the precepts, the commands, the fear, the judgments of God, they are perfect, they are sure, that is trustworthy, they are right, they are pure or radiant, they are clean and true slash firm. That is what God gives us. They refresh us and restore us. They make us wise. They give us joy. <laughs> There's so much joy to be had. They give us joy. They give us light so we can see, and they endure 
But what do they deal with? Well, they deal with the soul, the simple, the heart, the eyes. They deal with eternity and future righteousness. So we have here in Psalm 19 a restored worshiper who has been made right by the power of the Word of God, brought to a creation that is slowly rolling back on its curses as men and women and children see themselves as integrated into this cosmic covenant of Christ the King. That's what David's doing here. That's what he's experienced. Now, having said that, I want to deal with one more issue. In God's covenantal economy, there is no irreconcilable problem between the creation word and what we might call the redemptive word, that is the gospel, what Christ has given us by his own work. There is no nature versus grace scheme that is this unresolved tension. Um, side note, the, the nature-grace tension that plagued the Middle Ages was because of Thomas Aquinas, who married Christian theology to Greek metaphysics. It was, it was a, a pagan synthesis, a synthesizing of the Word of God with uh, man's rationale and, and his reason, and it was a, a problem that only the Reformation eventually, which you know, had a lot to deal with, but could have gone further, but the Reformation certainly tried to correct that. But like it or not, Psalm 19 blows up this entire paradigm and it completely destroys the duality that the Christian church is played with, plagued with today. Where you had Christians who refused to be involved in politics, who refused to be involved in any sort of culture-making pursuits, who refused to see anything that goes on, quote-unquote, out there as being their responsibility. The redemption of Christ is cosmic. It is cosmic. So there is no two-kingdom theology that all of that is now barred from consideration. Christ has created it through his word. He has restored it through his gospel. He has given us his written word to endure through the ages so that men will come to know him by the power of the word and thus participate in the world not retreat from the world. David hears, he hears the creative word as he reads the heavens, but he can only do so because the integral word of God has captured him. For the Christian, creation magnifies God because having been captured by the word, we know it comes from him. But here's the issue. For the unregenerate, creation magnifies man. Because looking at it from an imminence perspective, creation is to be worshipped. It's all we have. We're just, you know, uh, highly processed, evolved machines. And Big Pharma has been playing on that for a while now. And, and that's, that's just all we have. So some aspect of creation has to be worshipped because God has created, that, created us to worship. We're in His image. Now tied to this is the voice of Scripture, which tells us who this God is and what sort of expectations we should or shouldn't have as a result. Um, most Christians today believe that we can only do verses 7 through 11 very cautiously because the so-called natural world of verses 1 through 6, that all belongs to the secularists. Jesus is Lord and King of the church, they say, and we shouldn't be meddling in culture. And again, nonsense. John Calvin reportedly said that uh, from nature we know only the hands and feet of God, but from Scripture we know His heart. I didn't have time to track that down where exactly he said that. Probably the institutes, I imagine, but it could be a commentary. But from nature, we only know the hands and feet of God. But from Scripture, we know His heart. 
Again, no duality, no two-kingdom duality, no, no escapist dispensational duality. There is no tension between natural general revelation and special revelation. We have the creation and the created. That is Romans 1. And the Word of God is the power of God to integrate all aspects so that we might learn to serve and obey Him. As a result of, of God's integrating power, all aspects of the created order are now ours for the taking. So kids, I'm going to list off a bunch of stuff. You tell me in your own minds, or you can tell me later if any of those um, scratch your itch. All of creation is yours for the taking. Mathematics, geometry, geography, kinematics, or what we might call mechanical engineering, physics, chemistry, geology, biology, botany, psychology, zoology, logic, analytics, historiography, linguistics, sociology, economics, Lord help us with economics, aesthetics, uh, music, art, literature, legal sciences, uh, uh, jurisprudence, ethics, and even theology. All of these sciences, which are a development of the 15 modal aspects of creation, they have been handed over to the humanists because modern Christians today do not see the integrated and integral whole of the Word of God as expressed and outlined in Psalm 19 and other places like Psalm 133. And as a result, they don't see the culture as being anything worth fighting for. It's a sinking ship. Don't polish brass on a sinking ship said one megachurch pastor in California. They get briefly enthused at the first part of Psalm 19. Oh, isn't this fun? The sun, the stars, it's, it's, it's so neat. The aesthetics are, are nice and they grip you. And then they don't dare call anyone a theonomist. That's a curse word as a result of the middle part. And uh, then they skip down. And by the way, they usually just talk about the law of God in vague terms. Like, oh yeah, the morality of God. No, David does not just reduce it down. He shows us, like a kaleidoscope, all the various angles of it. Then they skip down to the part about repentance and faith and God restoring us as individuals and say, see, that's it. That's it. This selective reading is sheer pietism, and it's damaging and ravaging the church. They have no category for man being restored to his relationship to the creation, and thus the calling to develop the creation as an important task associated with the cultural mandate. To be human in God's world, to be human in God's world is to be integrated, to be unyielding, intransigent, and uncompromising in the totality of life. Psalm 19, man, meditating on it this week, it's just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. God has told us how to live our lives. He has given us everything we need for life and doctrine, for faith and for godliness. We have been equipped. He's given it all to you. He has restored us by the power of his word. He has granted us his wonderful law as a tool of dominion. And he has shown us through the vehicle of his Holy Spirit how we shall then live. Man is homo respondens. Man is a responder because he has responsibility. He has this ability to respond to God. Man responds to the creation and to the word. That is the definition of religion. That is it. H. Evan Runner said as much. All of life is religion. And religion is man's response to the word of God. So how will we respond? 
will we glory in the beauty of God's magnificent creation? Don't let a day go by where you're not in awe of his masterpiece. Don't, don't let it go by. Will we praise, with all the metaphors we can come up with, the law word of God? Or will we discredit it, talk poorly about it, run from it? And no one today talks like this about God's law. <laughs> no one. Talk about honey and gold. I think it's the opposite. Usually we're told not to talk about God's law. That's legalism. You're a Judaizer. And theonomy right now is being talked about more now than ever before because people are finally seeing the legitimacy of the Word of God and its pervasive and penetrating analysis of the created order. They're waking up to it. They see statism is a problem, but pietism can't fight that. Christian philosophy is growing by leaps and bounds because the humanist response to the Word of God is an utter failure. It only leads in statism and death. The 20th century certainly saw that. We are seeing a, a very judicious generation who is looking past the pietism of yesterday and looking forward to the post-millennial future that God himself has promised in his word. No more ossified Christianity bent on perpetuating a truncated gospel. No more of that. No more compromised, effeminate fathers who refuse to talk theology and politics. No more sacrificing children on the altar of me. None of that. When you embrace the word of God, you embrace everything. You embrace it for your family, your job as a child, your job as a parent, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, although all those days are gone, I'm, and I'm grateful for it. There is a movement. God is at work, and I'm grateful. Jesus Christ has died for our sins. He has rose from the dead, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. We have been integrated into this glorious covenant. As a result, we can now live our lives the way the law word of God describes building God-honoring families in, in Christ-exalting churches and Bible-obeying nations, all for the glory and praise of God. We respond to the Word of God and we obey the Word of God. It is the power of God for the salvation of men. It is the power of God for the salvation of our county, of the state of Virginia, of the United States, and the entire world. Will you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we glorify you you have given us your son. He is our king. He is our Lord. He has been given the nations. And it is our task to go forth and declare the excellencies of his word so that we can see God-honoring families, Christ-exalting churches, and Bible-obeying nations. God, we want our culture to be transformed. We want the sciences to be redeemed so that they honor and worship you. And Father, I've just... I pray for our, our children here, Lord, as they are being raised up and they are being given the word of God, the power of the God. May, may you, Lord, use that power to change them, to renew them so that they might carry forth this vision. Father, you've been good to us. You've given us what we need. May your Holy Spirit be with us as we go. In Christ's name, amen.